0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and there's Jerry, and it's like the holiday season. I feel great.
0: It is holidays. Uh-huh. With a Z. And Z. We're going to do what we almost did for a short stuff.
1: Oh, yes, Chuck. You're commended for, for that call.
0: Well, I was just like, I kind of wanted to do this one always as a long stuff. Mm-hmm. We don't have a show called Medium Stuff yet.
1: No. <laughs> we have a so-so stuff. It's called Stuff You Should Know. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, I, I saw that documentary Atari Game Over mm-hmm. a few years ago. It's a good one. And I also guested on Tech Stuff mm-hmm. and did a two-part episode on the history of Atari. It's a good one. With Strickland. He's great, too. And... um We could probably do Atari on its own at some point, too. I
1: agree. I think we definitely should.
0: But this is, I mean, I was about to say if Strickland and I could get two episodes out of it, but you know how that
1: guy goes on. Oh, my God. (laughs) He's the hardest working man in podcast business, I'll tell you that. Just ask. Um, So we're talking today about what is widely believed to be the worst video game of all time. Except that it's not. Except that it's not, yes. It's true. I love stories like this where it's like everything you thought you knew was wrong and really stop and ask yourself, how did you even know that? this truth that you knew before? I love that, man.
0: Yeah. E.T., the Atari video game, Mm -hmm. a lot of people, it's that whole internet bandwagon thing, I think. Yes. Worst game of all time. They tried to bury it in the desert. It was so bad. Right. Killed Atari, killed the whole stinking industry
1: right but it was just that bad of a game but oh, yeah. you've played it no
0: yeah <laughs> um i will say this it may be one of the one of the most disappointing games of all time it could be yes um because if you were a kid back then like me and uh, you uh. and you played Atari like i did um
1: it was it was a disappointment it was greatly anticipated I'm sure
0: a lot of anticipation that was part you know that was That was probably the biggest reason why it gets all the attention. Mm -hmm. It's because it was E.T. It wasn't uh, what was that dumb
1: game, Sorcerer? Yeah, or uh, um, fast food. There were so many bad video games for Atari. Yeah, there were a lot. It was awful. So we'll just come out and say, no, E.T. is not the worst video game of all time. There were a lot of worse, far far worse video games. Yes, uh, than E.T. But like you were saying. As far as the anticipation went, as far as the letdown went, as far as the loss of money went, you can understand how people would say this is the worst of all time. But also the timing of its failure was so utterly amazingly perfect that it just took it from – Worst video game of all time to worst video game of <laughs> all time.
0: Yeah, it's like here, Atari, in video con home console game industry, you're not doing well. And I notice you're sinking. let me tie this anvil around your ankle Right. that's shaped like E.T. Yep, that's right. It's just really bad timing.
1: So let's get into the story because it's one of the more interesting ones. And it features a great guy named Howard Scott Warshaw. Who, if you've seen the uh, the movie Game Over, you have probably come to really like and admire. Good dude. Good dude.
0: Brilliant designer.
1: Uh-huh. And like a just a genuinely great guy. Uh he um this the story begins back in 1982, I believe. Um yeah, it was nineteen eighty-two. Uh he was a designer at Atari. He'd apparently started out writing code at Hewlett-Packard and was very unhappy. So he made the move over to Atari, even though he had zero experience with game design. But he was really an exciting game designer because he came up with some really innovative ideas.
0: Yes, he uh, Yar's Revenge is is one of the best Atari 2600 games of all time.
1: Did you have that one?
0: Oh yeah, I never played it. It's great. It's it's, still great.
1: It's kind of Space Invaders or something. It's like a shooter thing, kind of. Yeah, you know, a single
0: screen shooter. Well, you're a, uh, um, I guess you were a Yar. And you're this sort of bug-like creature. Mm-hmm. And um, instead of shooting at something to, to chip away at it, you do it so with your body. So you just fly into this.
1: Oh, I think this, I it have goes, played It goes, it went,
0: uh, you would fly into this. I mean, of course, all this stuff was supposed to represent like a spaceship or a planet. Oh, okay. But it was made up of, you know, blocks and cubes. So <laughs> right. I don't even know what it was. Yeah. But your whole point was to make it smaller.
1: Gotcha. And you would fly into it. I know what you're talking about. Instead of,
0: yeah, shooting, you would fly into it.
1: For my money, that kind of game, the best of all time was Centipede.
0: Centipede is great. It was great. I mean, a lot of those games I played at A when I happened upon an arcade, Galaga and Frogger and Centipede and Defender, like those are still really good, challenging joust. Sure, Ms. Pac-Man. fun games. Yeah, Ms. Pac-Man.
1: Yeah.
0: They just stand up still. For sure. It's not like... You go to Galaga or Joust now, and you're like, "This is easy." What
1: was I thinking? I was such a stupid yeah.
0: kid. Those are still hard, challenging games, mm-hmm. and I think that's sort of the key to a good video game: is it's got to be winnable, mm-hmm. but it's got to be hard because mm-hmm. a kid doesn't want a, you know, a pushover, right? But a kid also wants to win.
1: So Howard Scott Warshaw knew this; like, he was a a game designer. He wasn't like a code monkey or anything like that. He was a game designer. An artist, I'm sure he considered himself especially at the time, and he should have. One of the other things he was known for um, was he was the guy who realized that you could make a game way more enjoyable if Mm. you created a backstory for it. Yeah. So rather than, like, uh, drive this car there, you're actually running away from this gang of, you know, international mafia guys who are trying to kidnap your girlfriend or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You make up a backstory for it. The The player reads this backstory and then plays. They care that much more about the person because their imagination is now kicked in. They're not just doing a mindless task. They're imagining what's going on in computer world. And he did that for for games. And he was one of the first, if not the first, designer to create backstories and biographies for his characters and games.
0: Yeah, and you know what? Uh, just now, it's, it's sort of hitting me that... Um, Part of the appeal was the imagination of the kid. So, mm-hmm. like, when you got the game Adventure or Asteroids, in Asteroids you were a, a pencil-drawn triangle. Right. <laughs> Shooting at pencil-drawn um, shapes. Shooting pencils at pencil-drawn shapes. Shooting dots at pencil-drawn shapes. Mm-hmm. In Adventure, you were a cube right. that flew around with an arrow attached to you that was supposed to be your sword. Mm-hmm but when you look at the the actual cartridge or the box that it came in right they had this great artwork of this knight on a horse with his sword drawn uh-huh. or in in asteroids this han solo like pilot like cruising through a, a you know an asteroid field right. and that would kick starts, that kick the imagination of a 10 year old right and then
1: they forget they're a cube Right. Or an arrow. Yeah, it makes it that much more real. Yeah, it was really, really cool. Because the imagination can do some pretty amazing stuff with eight bytes of graphic. Yeah. You know? For sure. (laughs) Um, So, uh, Warshaw figured this out.
0: Yeah, designing worlds.
1: He would design Easter eggs into his games, too. Yeah, he wasn't um, the first, but yes, no, but he he was an early person to do that. Yeah, adventure
0: was the first, I think.
1: And in addition to Yars' Revenge, he also already had a hit um, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark game. He had designed that, Man, and it's still played that so much. I read you did. Oh yeah, I so from what I, I never played that one. From what I understand, you it was extremely difficult. You it required both joysticks. Uh, yeah. There was I think I read somewhere that there were thirty three screens, which is on. Heard of? I could buy that, um, and that like people still have trouble beating it today.
0: Well, it's re- it was really hard. Um, I remember very specifically there was one part where you were to parachute, um, parachute from one screen, uh-huh. and it would all of a sudden you went to the bottom, and you it would pop up, and you're on the next screen going down. Right. And there's a tree on the left, and you had to start that jump early, going hard left. Right and hook onto that tree with your parachute. <laughs> wow. If you hit it at the wrong angle, it burst your parachute and you would die. Wow. And if you didn't, you would hook onto it and slide perfectly. And it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in a video game. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: thought you could <laughs> say to in day. your
0: life. No, as far as video gameplay, though. Really? It was very, very challenging. But it was possible. So when you tried it 27 times mm-hmm. and you nailed it on that twenty-eight. Right. Like you would run around the neighborhood telling all your friends (laughs) that you nailed the parachute jump.
1: Very cool. Really, really hard. But it was so hard that it was like um, you would get frustrated or it kept you sucked in. No, no, no. You're like, I know I can get it. There's the key. And that's where
0: ET messed up. But we'll get to that.
1: Okay. So um, on June, it's funny he remembers this, the date. On June 27th, 1982, Howard Scott Warshaw is hanging around Atari. And he gets a phone call. Mm-hmm. He gets a phone call from the CEO, Ray Kassar himself. That was a big deal back then. Oh, sure. And Ray Kassar says, hey, kid, we know you. We love you. We've got something going on with Steven Spielberg. He remembers that you made the Raiders of the Lost Ark game for him. He thinks you're a certifiable genius. But we have a special assignment for you. We want you to make the E.T. video game. Can you do it? Wait, don't answer yet. He went, yeah. Can you do it in five weeks? And he went, sure. Yeah. He said, (laughs) yeah. Which, I mean, even today, you're like, five weeks, that doesn't sound like very long. That was less than a tenth of the time that it would normally take.
0: Yeah. And he had, uh, the little secret is that he had already called some other people in the company and said. The CEO. Yeah. Is this, like, is this even possible? Or am I just crazy for asking this guy to do this in five weeks? Because it takes five or six months. And they all said, no, it's not possible. And he said, well, I'm going to ask him anyway.
1: Right. And, and Howard Scott Warshaw didn't realize that they'd already told him, like, no, this can't be done when he said yes. But he was locked in the punch and he was 24 years old and sure. full, of, full of exuberance and hubris and all sorts of stuff and said, <laughs> I can do this. So he did. And the reason we should say the reason why this, this schedule was so short it usually took five to six months for a game to be to be developed, mm-hmm. and he had five weeks to do it. And the reason why is because the haggling, the deal um, to get the rights for the ET game yeah. for Atari to purchase them, which they bought for twenty one million dollars, yeah. took way longer than expected. And they really wanted this game out for in time for Christmas.
0: That was the whole deal.
1: So because of the because the deal had worked all the way up into the summer, and Christmas was on the other edge. They needed also several weeks to manufacture the actual cartridges and get them into stores. Yeah. If you laid all this timeline out, they left five weeks to develop a game from scratch. So they they knew just the guy to do it, and it was Howard Scott Warshaw. And Howard said, I'll give it a shot. I'm going to do it.
0: Yeah, and um, I should point out that when you say five or six months is the usual time, five or six months was fast, the usual time was more than that.
1: Well, you also probably had a team working on it, like too. Like
0: five or six months was the Rush version. Right. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, well, I think the Raiders. Rush. I
1: think Raiders, <laughs> 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 not the pretty delightful prog rock version. <laughs> did that have a, they should have their own video game. I'm surprised they didn't. They were like right what there they in, that, did? in that wheelhouse. Wouldn't surprise We would
0: know. Like the 2112 game or something? We would
1: know. Yeah. There's right. no way we wouldn't would know about the Rush 2112 <laughs> Atari game.
0: So Warshaw uh, gets to meet with uh, Steven Spielberg uh, in L.A. and was not given direction or a brief. He meets with Spielberg, says, here's what I propose, this adventure game Mm. that follows the plot of the film somewhat where the kid is E.T. playing the game. You are E.T. Right. And you got to go around and collect all these pieces to build a phone so you can phone home and the government's after you and these bad doctors are after you. Mm-hmm. And it's just like your movie. Right. And Spielberg was like, "Well, can't you just have him like running around eating Reese's pieces
1: like Pac-Man?" Yeah. And he went, "Oh. There's this great <laughs> there's this great quote where he's like, "Here here's one of my idols, Steven Spielberg, asking me to knock off Pac-Man for the ET game." And I thought, "Well, gee, Steven, couldn't you make something more like The Day the Earth Stood Still?" <laughs> yeah. Burn. Right, burn. Um so he he apparently had to do a little fancy footwork to talk Spielberg into going with his vision rather than a Pac Man knockoff of ET, yeah. Which who knows may have may have sold a lot better, but it was uh he he got him to agree to his vision for this game. He said no, this is a groundbreaking movie; we need to make a groundbreaking game. And so Spielberg agreed to it, and and Warshaw started to get to work. So we should probably take a break before Scott Howard Scott really jumps in. Let's do it. All right, Chuck, so it's basically the beginning of July, 1982, and Howard Scott Warshaw is the sole programmer for an E.T. video game, Atari's biggest bet that they spent $21 million on the rights to, that they're going to spend an additional $5 million on the advertising budget for, the most anyone's ever spent on a video game up to that point. He's the only programmer who's going to make this game, and he has five weeks to do it. Which, from what I understand, no one had ever done before.
0: Yeah, and this was, Atari was a giant at the time. Um, if video, if the video game industry was beginning to slip, it wasn't, m- like the public didn't really realize that yet. Right. Uh, the industry may have, but Atari held about 80% of the, the market. Um, they were at about $2 billion in annual sales and about three quarters of a billion in profit, mm-hmm. which is, just unheard of. About
1: $2 billion in profit in today's money.
0: Yeah, so a ton of money. But they saw the writing on the wall. They knew that the personal computer, like the Commodore 64, uh-huh. that could play games but also do a lot more, was a real genuine threat to the home console.
1: So I read a, a contemporary article in the New York Times in from 1983 talking about this, and Atari said they did not see the writing on the wall. Well. One of them said the first 6 months of uh 1983 was one way the second 6 months it was like we were in a totally different business
0: yeah but if you if you read interviews with them now i think that might have been
1: oh the guy covering is well eggs?
0: yeah i don't think you want to go out in the press in the moment and say hey everyone we're super scared investors
1: <laughs> don't freak out <laughs> don't panic you're right chuck i i feel a little foolish
0: uh so they what they did was they they set warshaw up with um Everything he would have at work, they set him up at home. So the only time he could not be working on this game was his very short drive over to the office. And he worked on it almost nonstop for five weeks.
1: He had a manager that was assigned to him to make sure that he ate. That was, I'm sure, not the manager's only duty, but it was (laughs) one of the manager's new jobs was to make sure that Warshaw ate every day. How about a waffle? Sure, (laughs) whatever. Stop bothering me. ET's in the pit again. <laughs> so for five weeks he worked almost like you said, twenty-four hours a day. He said it's the hardest he's ever worked in his entire life. Yeah. And when five weeks came and went, he handed off his he handed off the game. He finished it. He he completed it in time. And it wasn't done, in his opinion, or it would turn out in anybody's opinion. Mm-hmm. But it was done. It was a complete game that he yeah. had finished in five weeks, the E.T. video game. And it wasn't just something like like a Pac-Man knockoff. He'd given real thought to it and created uh, a world that was much different from a lot of the <laughs> other games at the time. <laughs> at the time, he, it was a world. like It was a cube-shaped world with six screens. Yeah. And so if you walk to the left... You knew you were going to end up on this other screen. If you walked up, you would end up on the other screen. It was a world that you were navigating, yeah. rather than say like Yars' Revenge, which is just one screen and everything's happening on the one screen. And it may imply motion or something like this. With with the ET game, you were moving from one area of this world to the next. Yeah, which is it, it wasn't was, new. It it wasn't new, but it was it, it wasn't it, uh, it wasn't standard. To have six screens, especially if you had five weeks to do it. Give the guy a break.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying it should. It, <coughs> what I'm saying is that um, it wasn't like some big revolutionary thing. Yeah. Like the Raiders game was pre this, and it had 30-something screens. Okay,
1: all right, fine.
0: And adventure. Like, kids were used to this by this point. Okay. So it wasn't like, oh, wait till they get a load of six screens. <laughs> like, leaving the screen.
1: I see. But I think he, he's got Howard Scott Warshaw should have gone to everybody's house and been like, Here's your copy of E.T. the Game. I just want to let you know, I made this in five weeks.
0: Well, he designed Easter eggs in there, too. And I kind of wondered, like, how much time did he spend doing that? (laughs) Oh, yeah. With his own initials and, like, Uh the little Yars' Revenge flower.
1: I hadn't really thought about that. I don't know. So he says— time
0: was of the essence, though, i just maybe uh put that last on the list.
1: He says today that had he had one more week— to just troubleshoot, he could have worked out all the kinks. He could have worked
0: out the kinks and one more Easter egg. <laughs> but he handed it out.
1: He handed it off to Atari, and Atari said, "Genius!" They gave it to Steven Spielberg to play. Spielberg apparently liked it. Mm-hmm. And in the game, um, it, the, the, it wasn't it wasn't just some dumb, clunky game. It mm-hmm. was a mediocre game, but it was a game, and it was done, and, and it was out the door. And they got it out in time for Christmas. The cartridges shipped. Um, If you go back onto YouTube and search E.T. game ad Mm -hmm. or commercial, it brings up some extraordinarily nostalgic ads of E.T. dressed as Santa Claus playing his own video game um of a kid like receiving the ET video game from ET out in the shed. Oh yeah, yeah, I just remember amazing that. amazing stuff. So not only is it like Christmas time feeling but like yeah, feeling, Christmas time 1982 feeling Christmas
0: plus ET. Whoa, Over the top.
1: It's nice. <laughs> it's just like the the um the taste of sh- iced sugar cookies swells from the inside of your mouth. You almost gag on it. It's so overpowering.
0: So they they produce well, we don't know for sure how many Maybe as many as 12 million copies of this. No. At, at least 4 million.
1: That's part of the urban legend.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's an exact no, exact number, but millions of copies of these were produced. Mm-hmm. $21 million invested in the licensing. Plus five. $5 million in advertising and marketing. Right. Not just, I mean, who knows what they paid Warshaw or for the actual production. <clears throat> right. Uh, I mean, I doubt if it was millions of dollars, but it's probably salaried they they sunk a whole lot of money into this thing right and sold okay at first. they sold about a half a million copies mm-hmm. and then, and I remember oh you do, oh yeah, oh nice. Word got around, and this was obviously long before the internet, uh-huh, like you could still sell some stuff back then before everyone realized it stunk right but and that's what was going on, but literally kid to kid to kid. And cul-de-sacs and classrooms got the word that the E.T. game stunk. Yeah. And it killed it. It
1: did. Sold, Little
0: kids killed it.
1: They sold like a half a million copies right out of the gate almost. And then it, it peaked right there very quickly right around the Christmas season, right? Yeah. I mean, just think about
0: that, though. It was children led mm-hmm. to the demise. It's not like kids read an article in the newspaper, even a review <laughs> on the E.T. game. It was kids going, man, that game stinks. Yeah. What? You bought that? Oh, don't buy it. It stinks.
1: Yeah, it's it's terrible. And
0: that happened like a game of telephone all around the country. That's really cool. Simultaneously.
1: Kids get yeah. things done. <laughs> they do, man. So, it, like you said, it happened pretty fast. It peaked at a half a million copies. And over time, it managed to sell another million on top of that. So a million and a half copies. That's a success. I think it's like actually in Atari's top 10 yeah. of, of best sellers. But the problem is, if this story is a story of everything or anything, it's not the story of a uh, over overconfident game designer no. making a terrible game. It's an, a very confident game designer making a, a middling game. If it's a story of anything, it is of executives. Yes being drunk with confidence and hubris yes. that no matter what they put out, if it's tied to a hot property of like a movie or something, it's going to sell. doesn't matter what the game is. It's going to sell. Problem one. Problem two was they forecasted based on that hubris too. Yeah. So not only did they say it's going to sell no matter what we put out, it's going to sell. Bigger than anything we've ever put out before. And they ordered four million cartridges. Well, again, it sold a million and a half. And two and a half million cartridges were sitting in warehouses. Not to mention ones that were starting to be taken back. Because yeah. not only did did kids go, I don't want this game. I want to take it back. And took it took it to the stores. The stores started taking their games back to Atari. Yeah. So Atari's like, wait, wait a minute, everybody. This is E.T. the game. What are you doing? Put this in your twenty six hundred and shut up, and people didn't listen.
0: Yeah, and you can hardly blame the executives. I mean, they were like Warshaw plus Spielberg mm-hmm. is is going to be another hit because we had it in Raiders. So I sort of get it, but it was it was just it was that timeline, right? Like that was that was the big problem. It was all the timeline. He could have created a game as good as Raiders.
1: Right. It, yeah. Given five, six months, I'm sure. Yeah. Even given two months, you probably probably could have made an even better game. But it was, it was kind of a boring game. It wasn't that fun. There's a very famous quote from a New York Times um, <laughs> article in 1982 where a little 10-year-old said, it wasn't that fun. Yeah. <laughs> Which, that was kind of it. Yeah. That's all you need to say.
0: And it wasn't. And not only was it not fun, but... Um, and I don't know I guess you could call it a bug. It was um, a bug. A, it, it seems more like bad design than just a mistake. Mm. Um, but what would happen is E.T. would fall into these pits. And then he could levitate back out. But depending on which way you were, or even how you were holding the joystick, right. the slightest little move would cause E.T. to fall back on, into that pit.
1: No matter what direction you went sometimes.
0: Yeah, but it wasn't like all the time. It was um, – it happened enough, though, to where as a kid – remember you asked me earlier if it was frustrating trying to parachute right, as right. Indy? Yeah. It was not because you knew you could do it. Right. This was frustrating. I got you. Kids got frustrated. <laughs> you don't because want E.T. That. was falling in the pit, uh-huh. and he would get out, and he would fall in the pit. Right. And then you do that enough times, and you're like – I'm going to play Yars' Revenge yeah. or any of my other games.
1: Do you have fast food?
0: And kids put it down. Yeah. You know, they put down, well, they d- didn't put down the joystick and go outside and play. That would be like the, the movie ending. Mm-hmm. They just popped it out and put in the game that they
1: liked. Exactly. Exactly. So um, this, was a, this was a big deal for Atari um, because it came at, at the worst possible time. And um, speaking of the worst possible time, let's take a break (laughs) and uh, do an ad break, and we'll come right back. All right. All right, Chuck, so like i was saying this came at a really terrible time for atari you kind of talked about how the personal computer industry was starting to eat into their profits big yeah. time and um they really needed this et bet to pay off and not only did it not pay off they lost tens of millions of dollars on this yeah this it was a huge catastrophic bet for atari and the numbers are just stunning in Like you said, in 1982, Atari's profits were $2 billion in... um,
0: Well, in today's money.
1: No, that was... Yeah, their profits, I'm sorry, in today's money. Yeah. Their gross was $2 billion. Yeah. Um, In the second quarter of 1983, they posted a loss of $310 million. $536 million loss for the whole year. By 1984, the company had been sold. Yeah. So it went from $2 billion in profits to a loss of $536 million over the course of a year.
0: Yes, and it was not because of E.T.
1: But this is the thing. Okay, so it gets even worse. Hold on, we're not there yet. (laughs) I'm getting excited. The whole video game industry actually went down. Oh, yeah. So there's something called the North American video game crash of 1983, where not only did Atari go under, basically— the industry did. So the whole, the whole industry in 1983 had a $3.2 billion in sales. By 1985, two years later, they had $100 million in sales. Yeah, It was a crash. Like, that is a catastrophic crash. And like you're saying, no, it wasn't because of E.T. But imagine this. Think about this. All of that has been laid ever since then at the feet of E.T. the video game. And Howard Scott Warshaw. People look at him and say, you ruined the video game industry single-handedly. That's how he's thought of.
0: I think that was the case.
1: Up until like 2014 or 15, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think people in the know knew that 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 was not the case.
1: But the popular pop culture opinion of him. Yeah,
0: maybe. Yeah. But um, let's say E.T. was a big hit. It would not have saved Atari.
1: No, it may have like staved the the bleeding a little bit, but Maybe not. For a quarter. It would have been a drop in the bucket, basically.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I certainly feel bad for Warshaw. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he has he's a good inning, so stick around. Yeah, for that,
1: don't go anywhere.
0: Uh, after E.T., he took some time off. He said that uh, he just needed to sort of recover. I believe was the words he used. Mm-hmm. He went into real estate uh, and did not enjoy that at all. Um, and eventually, he became a psychotherapist, and that's what he does today. He's a he, he's labeled the Silicon Valley psychotherapist mm-hmm. and sort of specializes in talking. He's, he jokes that he's fluent in English and nerd. So I think kind of specializes in talking to Silicon Valley types right. um, about their work problems. Yeah. Certainly a man that can identify. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. I bet he's a
1: great psychotherapist. He seems like he definitely would be. Yeah. So he definitely made peace with the whole thing. And I think he um he very frequently jokes, I've seen it in more than one article, that he says um he kind of enjoys it when people say that is e- 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 the worst video game of all time. Right. Because people also say that Yars' Revenge is one of the best video games of all time. So he has the greatest range of any <laughs> video designer ever. So he definitely has like a... I think it took him a little while. That's the impression I have to, oh, sure. to make peace with it. But he made peace with it. And I think one of the reasons he was able to make peace with it, and I'm just armchair psychologizing here, but he um, came to realize. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've used it before. And you said the exact same thing, I, I think, too. Yeah. Um, he realized that it wasn't the worst video game of all time and that the, a lot of the people who were saying it was the worst video game of all time didn't know what they were talking about, which has to be super liberating, Sure. When the whole world's like, you ruined everything, and then you realize like they don't even know what they're saying, you can just kind of let yeah. it roll off your back a little more easily.
0: So the the cherry on top of this story, we mentioned this documentary Atari Game Over. Um it is about the legend of the story of the E.T. game, which continued after its demise with this urban legend that Atari was so distraught and embarrassed by this game. <laughs> That they had all the remaining boxes shipped out and buried in the desert under cement. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Initially, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Atari spend all this money to do this when they could just burn them? Sell them in the dollar bin. Do anything other than this weird plan to bury them out in the desert of New Mexico.
1: Yeah, and a lot of people took it. When it was kind of an initial rumor that, like, Atari was trying to bury their shame. That's how it it just went that much further to point out how bad the E2 video game was. Atari was trying to bury it and forget about it. Right.
0: Uh, So, Mm in 2011, there was um, a party where there was an Atari, uh, former Atari person there, and uh, a guy named Mike Burns was talking to him and said something about yeah this urban legend that you guys did this mm-hmm. and apparently the answer was just sheepish enough to where he was like wait a minute right. is that true right so
1: d- did he did he fund this documentary is that how that worked I think it, uh, he he's a guy who makes things happen. He brings people together. <laughs> okay. I think yes, he definitely put some of his own money into it, but I think he also got others to to put money into it as well.
0: Okay. I didn't know if he was involved in the dock itself. Yes, yes, he was. Um or just financing the dig. Both. But uh Zach Penn made this documentary. Um Zach Penn, a great, great writer. Um ironically wrote the movie Ready Player One. Oh he did. Which talks about Adventure Easter eggs, right? and Easter eggs and all that fun stuff. Nice. So he's he's written a bunch of movies, a bunch of the Marvel movies and stuff. Um, and it was clearly a labor of love. This this documentary, if you've seen it, uh, you know Zach Penn is like super excited about all this stuff. Yeah. So the old Alamogordo landfill in New Mexico uh, has three hundred. It's three hundred acres, and then a hundred cells, which are these. Uh, well, it says holes, but they're just these big square, deep pits where you, you know, if you listen to our landfills episode, Mm -hmm. then you know what goes on there. They just dump stuff in there and cover it up. And the legend was that the ET is in one of these cells. And these days they chart it and it's mapped out so they know what's where generally. Sure. And if a cop comes and says, hey, there's some evidence from four years ago, Uh they could say, oh, well, that's going to be in this cell because it it was from this area of town where it was picked up, right? and we buried it here. Back then, they didn't have anything like that.
1: No, it was like they just dug a hole, put garbage in it, covered it up, and went home, according to a guy named Joe Lewandowski. And Mike Burns lucked out that a guy named Joe Lewandowski worked at at the Alamogordo um, City Waste Department, because he is basically the institutional memory of Alamogordo's waste. Oh, yeah. And he worked at the dump for so long that he had a pretty good chance of remembering what where the stuff was put. Um, but he was kind of like, "No, we don't. We didn't document it. I have no idea. Leave me alone." And apparently, Mike Burns is not the type to just be like, "Oh, okay. Oh, thanks. Didn't mean to bother you." Right. He'll keep pestering you until you do what he wants, from what I understand. Um, and so he finally got Joe Lee Windowski on board, and in just an astounding turn of good luck. Joe Lewandowski's wife had made a scrapbook of Joe's time working for Alamogordo's um, waste department <laughs> that included pictures of the dump from around this time. Yeah. So they were able to narrow down these 100 cells over 300 acres to two, to just two, which narrowed the search enough that they could actually start taking samples to try to... find Yeah, that plants. was
0: a very big breakthrough. <laughs> yeah. And if you watch this documentary, when they're, when they're taking these samples... Mm-hmm and they come across, like, newspaper clippings from that year and that month yeah. where these cartridges were supposedly buried, it's really exciting. It is. I got to admit, it's like, oh, my gosh, like, they, right. it's like finding buried treasure. Right. So they narrowed it down. Uh, all of these people showed up. Um, fans, the, uh, what's his name, Ernst, Ernest Klein, mm-hmm. who wrote the book Ready Player One. He mm-hmm. showed up in his uh, Back Th- to the Future DeLorean. Right. And uh, it was a very big deal. They Howard uh, uh, Warshaw came in and he was there, yeah. And people were just like embracing this guy instead of like it's not like he showed up and people are like, There he is, get him, get him. him. He's like this (laughs) beloved, cherished dude, right? And I get the sense that this was a very big deal, oh, yeah, for his closure. Um, which is interesting because burying something is usually the closure.
1: Right.
0: In this case, digging it up was the closure. Yeah, good point. Uh, and they did find uh, thirteen hundred game cartridges. Yeah, which it, it makes you wonder, like how this. How they got there, how the rumor got started to begin with, well, they, and the fact that there is some truth to it.
1: Yeah, they feel like it definitely confirms that urban legend. Like Atari definitely did cover up; they did dump these these cartridges, but it wasn't just E.T. cartridges, and it wasn't like the millions that they supposedly dumped. But they probably buried some elsewhere in either California uh, or Texas or both. But it, it confirmed that yes, this actually did happen. The urban legend was real, and. At the very least, it gave um, Howard Scott Warshaw that closure you were talking so cool. about. He got to see, you know, 30-something years on, um, people were still you know, vibing out on his creation, although in ways he could not have possibly predicted when he was spending that five weeks programming this game.
0: Yeah, he said he was full of gratitude. That's really cool. That's a very cool way to go through life, my friend.
1: So let's, Oh, man. You know, if you can remember to have gratitude, it truly does make you happy. Yeah, it's insane. It's just remembering to be grateful is the trick.
0: So they ended up. Uh, a lot of these went on eBay, um, auctioned off. I think they sold about $100,000 worth of these things mm-hmm. uh, that went to the c- uh, city of Alamogordo. Of course, they owned them. Right. It's not like they just gave them out to everyone that was there. As a, as a party they gift? They should have. Sure. They should have given everyone one copy.
1: I think some of the, like, like Mike Burns and some of his crew got some and Alamogordo kept some. But I think the ones that were auctioned were auctioned by Alamogordo to go to a, fund a museum.
0: I would love space. a copy, a signed cartridge. From Warshaw. I
1: mean, the most I think one went for was 1500 bucks. so. Yeah, well, I don't want it that bad, but. <laughs> no, but that, I'm saying like that's the most. That's yeah. the, the highest any of them went for. So yeah. you could probably get one for a couple hundred bucks if you tried. I wonder if he listens to the show. I hope so. You never know. I hope so. I hope we cleared it up for you, Warshaw. You're a legend, sir. Yes, hats off to you.
0: Send me a signed cartridge. <laughs> right? Send two. Josh needs one. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. <laughs>
1: um, you got anything else?
0: no it did it, e t was not the worst game there were there were games that were so bad that you don't they were just in the dustbin of history like, they were so bad
1: yeah, like sorcerer, like you said, Manja's apparently pretty bad
0: yeah they were terrible like all these not knockoff companies, but you know Atari, Atari opened it up to where anyone could mm, right. could design a game that fit. Their console,
1: and some people say that that was one of the reasons why Atari lost market share is because there's so much crud on the shelves. Right, and people were tired of buying cruddy games for twenty five bucks. Yeah, and that they just oversaturated the market themselves, but they oversaturated it with terrible stuff.
0: Oversaturated.
1: Well, at any rate, that's E.T. the game, not the worst video game of all time. Uh, But a heck of a story I'll tell you what Good one And uh, hopefully it gave you A little bit of nostalgia This holiday season Yeah agreed Feel that warm tingling That's nostalgia It's either a bladder infection Or nostalgia (laughs) Uh, Let's see Since I said bladder infection Everybody It's time for Listener Man
0: Uh, This is uh, about bird poop Uh, Hey guys Listened to the Olive Oil Podcast And loved it very much Living in Italy I use it every day Bless my wonderful complexion and youthful looks. Nice. Uh, I want to tell you about a problem, though, that we have in Rome every year, indirectly caused by olives. Uh, every winter, the city center is home to millions of migrating starlings who spend their days out in the local countryside eating olives and having a great time. In the evening, they come back to our warmer city center and sleep in the city center trees for the night. Great news for bird watchers, but bad news if you like to avoid being pooed on. Oh, no. uh, the city gets covered in the stuff. And he sent me a video in, of these cars parked on the street. And it literally looks like it, it was painted with bird poop. Gross. Completely solid, every square inch. That's got to be bad for the paint. And yes, it's really bad. Uh, he said, what does what this got to do with olive oil? Well, the olive stones may not come out of the starling bird's bottoms, uh, but the olive oil-infused greasy poo does. and It makes driving along the roads uh, almost impossible. I've fallen off my scooter twice in the past few years.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Because of this. So I guess it's it's slippery, oily poop. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, and that is from James in
1: Rome. Wow, thanks, James. That email email's kind of petered out at the end there. Yeah. I was expecting a big finish. Yeah, just oily poop. All right, well, thanks. Uh, regardless, and stay, stay safe on your scooter there, James. He said people use umbrellas. And hats off to you living in Rome. Have you been to Rome? Sure. When I went, I was like, I could live here. Pretty great. I told Jumi, she's like, eh, maybe. It's
0: a lovely city. It really is. Old world charm, cats, What's what else? Wine. Uh, food. Beautiful people.
1: Yeah. Man, Lots I remember seeing
0: men and women at every turn that looked like runway models. Sure. And they were just regular newspaper boys. Well, the
1: fact that they do like a little twirl every once in a sure. while as they were walking really kind of sold it, too. Yeah, and go, ciao. <laughs> ciao, Bella. Ciao, Bella. <laughs> uh, wow, this turned out weird. Um, If you want to get in touch with us, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and hit us up through our social links. You can go to thejoshclarkway.com or you can just send us a good old fashioned email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and
0: thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.